Father God, I'm excited to hear what you might want to say to our hearts tonight. Would you speak through your word? Would you speak through me? Would the things that I say uh, be glorifying to you, be honoring to you? And would the things that your people hear uh, do the same thing? We love you, Lord. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. My sermon title for today is A Matter of the Heart. A matter of the heart. And if you think this sermon title sounds a little bit like one of those cheap romance novels that you can pick up at the grocery store, you're correct. It is a little bit like that. Now, in college, I had a brief stint where I was interested in creative writing. And in one of those classes, I learned that there is actually a pretty generic formula to those romance novels. Uh, That if you can master the formula, you can actually make millions of dollars selling these cheap romance novels. In fact, Daniel Steele, the author of Matters of the Heart, notice there's a difference between her title and my title, She has sold over 590 million copies of her books, 590 million copies. Now, I have another confession to make. I have read one of the Christian versions of these romance novels. I have read a book called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. It's loosely based on the book of Hosea, so that makes it okay, right? I read it about a year before I met my wife, and I read it as like a strategy to finding a wife. It really, it really did not help the process. Uh, when Monica found out, she thought that was a little silly. Now, maybe you've read one of those embarrassing novels, or you like uh, kind of a sappy chick flick, or maybe you're just a romantic at heart. You, you love music. You love the arts. Well, we engage in lots of things to stir our hearts, don't we? Not just uh, romantic uh, novels. We stir our hearts by going to the movies, by watching a sports game. So what is this thing in us that that drives our will? What is this, this heart that moves us to make wise decisions, sometimes foolish decisions? And another question, what rules your heart? What shapes you? What molds you? Is it your mind? Is it your emotions? Tonight's theme, tonight's topic is the heart. I have a a good friend who I chat with uh, every other week, so every two weeks roughly, and he likes to ask me a simple question, but it's a deep question. He likes, likes to ask, how's your heart? How's your heart? How's your soul? He asks this because he wants to cut away all the clutter. He wants to get right down to how I'm doing at the core. Cut away all the busyness, everything to hide behind. How is your heart? And as your pastor tonight, your pastor who loves you and cares about you, I want to ask the same question to every one of you, whether you're a regular attender or or a guest tonight. How is your heart? How's your soul? How's that thing inside of you that makes you do all sorts of things? Is it right with God? In the Bible, the the topic of the heart comes up all the time. 
And the heart is really the core of a person. It's not just their will. It's not just their emotions. It's that thing that produces will, that produces emotions. It's the deepest recess of who a person is, is their heart. And we're going to be looking at that theme tonight because in the book of Exodus, the theme of the heart comes up over and over and over again. In fact, if you look in the book of Exodus, the word, the Hebrew word for heart, lave, is found 46 different times. Now, it's not always translated as heart, but it's clear that in Exodus, the heart matters. And over half of those references to the heart in the book of Exodus refer to the heart of one man. And it's actually not Moses, it's Pharaoh, the heart of the king of Egypt. Now early in the book of Exodus, God makes Moses a promise. God promises Moses that he is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Now we didn't read that tonight, so I want to read it before you. Exodus chapter 4 verse 21 says this. It says, I went too far. Here we go. Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. See, God has a plan. God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to be Lord over Pharaoh's heart so that he can reveal his power. As we examine the theme of the heart, I want us to ask that big question, how is my heart? I think if Pharaoh had stopped and asked that and honestly examined that in light of who this God that Moses was bringing to him is, I think we would have a much different story. But instead, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He rejects God, and he loses his kingdom and his firstborn son in the process. So how does Pharaoh harden his heart? How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardens his heart by rejecting God. At the beginning of chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. And they say, thus says the Lord, let my people go. We're going to go and we're going to perform sacrifices to God in the wilderness. You need to let them go. But Pharaoh, of course, doesn't listen to them. He doesn't want them to go. Their their whole economic system is built on the backs of slaves. And Pharaoh responds, who is this Lord you speak of? (laughs) I don't know him. I don't know who this Lord is. Now, when you see Lord in your Bibles, in all capitals, so you can take a moment, you can look down at your Bible, and if you see Lord, uh, L-O-R-D, in all capitals, that's the English translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. And Yahweh is a special covenant name. Now, we don't hear covenant all all the time in our culture. Covenant is a promise where God is involved. And specifically in the Bible, God made a special covenant promise with Moses' and the people of Israel, the Hebrews' great ancestors, the the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise to that family to give them a great people, a great multitude of descendants, to give Abraham's uh, descendants a place to reside. We saw the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. 
And then to always be with him, to have his presence. So this covenant promise involves a people, a place, and a presence. So when Pharaoh says, I don't know your Yahweh, he's saying, I don't know your God. I know my gods. I know the gods of Egypt. They're the ones who have power. My gods are greater than your gods, than the gods of the Hebrews. The Hebrews are smelly shepherds. We're refined. We're powerful. Your God's promises aren't true. I'm going to break your God. See, Pharaoh doesn't just not know God. He doesn't want to know God. He doesn't want to to care about the God of the Israelites. He doesn't want to honestly investigate if the God of the Israelites is the true God. See, Pharaoh doesn't know God because he rejects God. And as we look at Pharaoh's heart, As we examine Pharaoh's heart through the book of Exodus, we need to look at our own hearts to apply a little test, to do a little questionnaire, a little self-inventory of where our hearts are. The primary way, the first way to know if you have a hard heart like Pharaoh is to ask, do I know God? And to ask it in an honest way, not just to say, oh yes, of course, check that box, but do I really know God? And am I known by God as well? If you don't know this God, I hope that you'll listen. Because I want to introduce this God to you tonight. I want to introduce that same Old Testament God, Yahweh, who's still active today. But if you don't know him and if you reject him, you have the same heart as Pharaoh. And the results aren't good. If Jesus were here tonight, and he had a stethoscope, and he came up and he began to examine your heart, what would he find? Would he, would he find a heart that beats harder the closer he gets? Because you know who this man is. You know this is Jesus, and you love Jesus. And you, you want to be near him. Or would he hear a heart that sputters? And hisses and wheezes because it's a heart that has rejected God and doesn't want to be near God, that God is poison. I hope that through the course of your life, you'll put your your heart in the hands of this good doctor and that you'll grow to love him and not reject him. A healthy heart loves God. Now, when you visit the doctor's office, there's other things that the doctor does besides just examine your heart, right? They, they look in your ears, your nose, your mouth, like your, your personal space. They get in that space. It's because they want to know if you're well. <laughs> See, they're looking for symptoms uh, of, of health, of, of sickness. And so there are symptoms in our passage tonight that, that reveal if our hearts are hardening. So there's that ultimate hardening if you reject God, but there are other ways that we can harden our hearts. And we do this by looking at the word for harden in Hebrew. But in fact, there are three different Hebrew words for harden. So that's kind of exciting. And so we're going to look at each one of them. I guess we define exciting differently, don't we? The first Hebrew word is hazak. Can you just go back? Thank you. Hazak. We won't all say that together as a congregation. That means to be firm. See, when Pharaoh hears 
the words of Moses, the words of the one true God, he firms up his heart. Instead of softening his heart and obeying God's commands, what does Pharaoh do? He stands his ground. He says, no, I'm not going to back down. I'm the tough guy. I'm greater than this God of the Israelites. I am standing my ground. Pharaoh is stubborn. Pharaoh is obstinate. And I suppose as king, you're supposed to kind of be stubborn. You're supposed to kind of be obstinate. But you're also supposed to be wise. So how can we test our hearts to see if our hearts have perhaps a little bit of that firmness that's in Pharaoh, that symptom of a hard heart that we don't want? So we can ask ourselves, do you pride yourself in your stubbornness? Do you pride yourself in always standing your ground even when you know you're wrong? If we do this in normal, everyday living, what's to say that we won't do this with our relationship with God? Because sometimes the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he wants to convict us of a sin and he wants to change our lives for the better. But you know, the first thing we have to do is we have to not stand our ground. We have to yield, yield to God's work in our lives. Yield as God wants to mold and shape our hearts. The great news is that we can do that every day. We can do it anew, even if we failed yesterday. Even if we've been ignoring God, we can soften our hearts and give them to him this day so that our hearts are softening, not getting harder. The next Hebrew way, the Hebrew word that kind of defines this hardness, this symptom, is the word kaved. And it means to be heavy. And this is used in the book of Exodus to describe Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh has a heavy heart. So when you think of something that's hard, you might also think of something that's heavy, right? Of steel, of iron, of something that's not easily moved. Well, this word for, for heavy is also the Hebrew word for glory. See, Pharaoh is kind of uh, consumed with building his own image up, with his own glory, with his own pride, with his own ego. He is weighed down by his ego. He is weighed down by his pride. That's how he is hardening his heart. He is now indifferent to God's words. When our pride is more important to us than obeying God, that's a sign of hardness in our hearts. When we're more concerned with our reputations than the glory of God, than following after Jesus, that's a sign of hardness, of a sickness inside of us, of sin. And I'll be honest, this is probably the hardness that I wrestle with the most because my pride gets in the way of me obeying God all the time. This is something that we have to come before God and say, God, deal with my pride. It's a very dangerous prayer to pray. But we want a soft heart, don't we? We, we don't want a heart that's more concerned with our pride than God's glory. The final hardness is kasa, to be difficult. This word for hardness is only used once in the book of Exodus. And this hardness is a harsh hardness. It's an evil. It's a bad harshness. It's a, it's a hardness that, that's rooted in an uh, antagonism towards God. 
See, this Pharaoh, his father, he threw the little Hebrew baby boys into the Nile because he wanted to control the slave population. That's an evil heart. And his son, the Pharaoh, in this story is no different. He's willing to enslave the Israelites for his own power because he doesn't care about hurting others, about enslaving them. If you're someone who, who easily acts harshly towards others, that's a sign of hardness in your heart. If you're someone who doesn't mind lashing out. So we need to realize that God created every single one of us in his image and we each have value. Then that means each and every single one of us, whether we're a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, a child, or an elderly person, We deserve to be treated with respect because we are valuable. We're made in God's image. If you're someone who struggles with harshness and who mistreats those around you, I invite you to confess that sin and ask God, God, would you soften my heart? Would you take away that harshness, that evil inside of me? Because I can't deal with that sin myself. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus, that you've confessed your sins before God and you've put your faith in Christ, I believe that you can't have the exact same hard-heartedness of Pharaoh as Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh does not have the Holy Spirit. When we, when we put our faith in Jesus and God comes into our lives, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he softens our hearts. He transforms us. And Pharaoh does not have the Holy Spirit. So we can kind of struggle with the the after effects of hard-heartedness, but we're never going to have that same true hard-heartedness that Pharaoh has, and that's good news. But if you don't know Jesus yet, then I can't extend that same good news to you, but you can know Christ even tonight. Now, God does promise to take the heart of anyone that, that, that is willing to put their faith in him and just transform that heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 talks about this this transformation that can take place through the work of Jesus in our lives. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, that's what God does. This is the gospel. This is the core. This is the heart of Christianity, that God comes into our lives and takes out that old, that sinful, that rock-hard heart, and he gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh that's soft towards God, and that heart has a different beat entirely. It's a beat that seeks God, a beat that loves God and wants to be near God and is willing to change. I want that heartbeat, not the heartbeat that I'm born with in my own sin. Now, maybe this doesn't seem fair to you because some of you remember Exodus 4, verse 26, uh, 21, what we started with, where God promises Moses that he is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. So how can that be fair? If, if, if Pharaoh, does he really stand a chance to God? You know, isn't it really God's fault that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, if we look in the book of Exodus, we actually see three different types of hardening. We see... Pharaoh's heart becoming hard. This is just due to sin. Sin in his life hardens his heart. He rejects God. He doesn't want to know God. But then we see uh, Pharaoh relishing his own sin and hardening his own heart. 
See, we're born in sin and we embrace it unless God delivers us. But God does not deliver Pharaoh. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, if God hardens Pharaoh's heart, can he really help it? Whole books have been written on this subject. How can Pharaoh be responsible for his sin if God ultimately is in control? Something that helps me with this, that, that I, I think we should all wrestle with this, these questions, but something that helps me understand it is that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, they were not written for modern American English readers. Where we like everything to kind of fit perfectly in its box, in its category, in its label. That's because of the Enlightenment. We're very logical mind, logically minded. The Old Testament was written for Hebrew readers who were much more fine with tension. With kind of two seemingly opposite truths, both being true. That paradox, I like to call it a mystery. I like the mystery. I like the mystery that God is in charge of everything and somehow we're still responsible for our decisions. We're still responsible for our choices and our sins. See, the mystery is that Pharaoh was born in sin. He relished his sin. And God nudged him along because God actually has a greater plan. See, God is going to even use the evil heart of Pharaoh to do something incredible, to reveal himself to all of Egypt. Next week, we're going to learn about the plagues, and I hope you'll come back because it's going to be exciting to go through the plagues. And it's really cool because God is, is just revealing himself to the nation of Egypt. He's kind of introducing himself to them, and they have an opportunity to trust in him. It's actually a message of mercy. If God just went away and didn't do any of this, the nation of Egypt would never have that opportunity to put their faith in God. Now back to this topic of where is your heart? How, how is your heart doing tonight? See, we don't want to respond like Pharaoh. We don't want to harden our hearts when God comes to us and speaks to us, when the Holy Spirit is nudging us, do we? How can we respond differently? Well, I think that's a good question because the people of God, Christians, the, the people in the Old Testament, I think we're susceptible to hard-heartedness. I think we... Uh, are at risk of, of rejecting God, of, of, of turning away from God every single day. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of losing salvation or anything like that, but in the sense of disobeying God. We're susceptible to that. Now, when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, it doesn't go well, right? They go to Pharaoh and they say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm going to keep the people busy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them more and more work. And then it says that the, the foremen, the overseers, they're the ones who are held responsible for this. And, well, of course, the Israelites can't meet the new work demand. Pharaoh wants them to, to make bricks, the same number of bricks, but he takes away their straw. And straw is a, an essential ingredient to a building these, these baked bricks. And so now they have to do uh, twice as much work with half the help and of course, they can't do it, and so the foremen, the overseers, they end up getting beaten, and they go to Pharaoh and say, why are you doing this, Pharaoh? And Pharaoh says, you guys are idle. You just want to go away into the wilderness and worship your God, well, no, get to work, because your God's not true, my God, my gods are the true gods. And it says they, were, they, they knew that they were in trouble, and so what did they do? 
Did they go out and did they, they call on God and, and pray to God and say, God, come rescue us? No, they, they went out and they blamed Aaron and they blamed Moses and they said, why did you guys get us into this predicament? Why did you guys get us into trouble? It's your fault. I don't know about you, but I feel it's easier to trust God when things are going well. When life uh, seems to be a little easier, when the, when the path is a little bit straighter and a little bit smoother, it's easier for me to trust God, to soften my heart towards him. How about when life gets difficult, can we still uh, trust God in that same way? Or are we quick, like the Israelites, to turn away from God when the going gets difficult? See, the Israelites are willing to, to obey God, to follow Moses if, it, you know, if God does immediately what he says he's going to do. But what if there's a delay? What if God is doing other things? If God has other plans, he's ultimately going to bring about his promises, but he's not going to do it as the crow flies. He's not going to go straight. He's going to go around. I think as Christians, we are susceptible to getting hurt, to getting our hearts wounded, <laughs> You know why? It's because as Christians, God calls us to place our hearts in his hands, right? He calls on us to trust him. That's why he says pray, doesn't he? The the Bible says pray, knock, and I'll give it to you. And so we pray, we put our heart on the line and say, God, I really need you to come through for my sick relative, for my sick friend, for this job issue. And you you look at those scriptures that say God is going to (laughs) answer, And then God is quiet, and God is silent. And what does that do to our hearts? It wounds our hearts, doesn't it? That silence, that silence hurts. I don't like that silence. Have any of you ever heard of this thing called Paris Syndrome? This thing called Paris Syndrome, I I learned about it recently but it's a, it's, a, it's a real thing. It's a, it's a diagnosed psychological disorder that some people experience when they go to Paris, France. See, when tourists go to Paris, France, they're told by marketers uh, and, and kind of artists and just culture in general that Paris is going to be awesome. Paris is going to be beautiful. There's going to be cheese. There's going to be wine. You can walk along the canals. You can see uh, the Eiffel Tower. You get the perfect picture. But when some of these tourists get there, they realize, well, there's smog in the air. There's trash in the streets. And the locals don't always like tourists. They can be a little bit rude. And the effects of Paris syndrome are hallucinations, feelings of persecution, anxiety, dizziness, sweating, and even vomiting. And according to BBC, so this is according to BBC, Paris syndrome is especially prevalent among Japanese tourists. Apparently, Paris, France is marketed specifically to Japanese tourists as the perfect place. And 12 tourists a year fall victim to Paris syndrome because they put their hearts on the line, don't they? (laughs) They put their hearts on the line for Paris, and Paris doesn't meet their expectations. I think as Christians, we can be a little bit like that, can't we? Where we put our hearts on the line for God. I know many of you have been involved in Cornerstone since the very beginning of this church plant. 
We're a new church plant. We're about a year and a half old. I kind of think the church planting is a little bit like Paris syndrome. You hear how amazing church planting is, that you're going to help launch this new church. You're going to get this ministry off the ground. And, you know, people are going to be saved. We're going to found this church that hopefully will last hundreds of years and uh, do plenty of ministry work in New England. And we're going to revolutionize the culture of Westford. Everyone's going to know Jesus in this town of 21,000 people. And then we start church planting, and it's a little bit harder. (laughs) Not everyone comes to a service. Not everyone wants to get involved. Not everyone wants to commit and volunteer. And it's hard because we put our hearts on the line, don't we? we? We pray, God, would you help us out? Would you work through this ministry? Now, maybe that resonates with you, but that's not your story. Maybe you're putting your heart on the line in a different way, especially if you're a first-time guest. Maybe there's something going on in your life that's just as difficult. You are putting your heart on the line before God, for a job or a sickness or a friend. I don't know what your story is, but I know there's a solution. (laughs) I know there is a way to heal our hearts. I know there is something we need in the scriptures that can change us and that can give us soft hearts instead of hard hearts no matter what we're going through. I know this because the scriptures are true and it tells us this. See, there is a cure There is a cure to hard-heartedness. And the cure to a hard heart is knowing God. The cure to a hard heart is knowing God. See, after the people complain to Moses, what do they do? They don't cry out to God. They go away. But what does Moses do? Moses goes before God, and he lays down his heart before Yahweh, before that good God. And he says, God, Yahweh, why? (laughs) Why, God, did you bring me here? I've only made it worse. Pharaoh is a bad guy. He is not listening. Why, God? (laughs) Why? See, Moses knows God, doesn't he? And he is known by God. And he is willing to lay his heart on the line even in those moments, even in those difficult moments. See, Moses knows the cure is not running away from God. He already did that. We looked at that last week. He went all the way to Midian. That certainly didn't cure him. The cure to a hard heart is knowing God, even when our circumstances are bad. Knowing who God is and that his character is good and that he loves us and that he cares about us and that he wants a relationship with us, that can change not our circumstances but how we experience them, how we walk through them. And so what does God do in chapter 6 of Exodus? God introduces himself to the people of Israel, to the, the Hebrews. And it says, I'm going I'm to kind of introduce myself in a new way to them. Well, really, he's, he's introducing himself in like a new experiential way, that God is going to be gracious to them, that they're going to know him in an even deeper way than their ancestors knew God. And so what does God do? He introduces himself and he says, I am the Lord who keeps my promises, who keeps his promises. In verses two through five, God references the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob once more. 
Now, Abraham lived about 2150 B.C. We don't know the exact date. And Isaac died in about 1850, right around then, 1859. And that's a gap of about 300 years. It's a space of, of 300 years that God was faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then what happened? Well, the people of, of, of Israel, Jacob's 12 sons, they came to Egypt and they multiplied into a great nation and they were in Egypt for 400 years. So this is 700 years. And what does God say? He says, I've been faithful for this entire time. I've been right here. Yes, I've been silent for the last 400 years, but I have not forgot my promise. I have not forgot that I am gonna be with you. I'm gonna multiply you into a great people and I'm gonna bring you to the promised land. I am gonna take you home. God hasn't forgotten any of those promises. See, when you're tempted to doubt God, when you're tempted to harden your heart, remember God's promises. Remember God's promises in the Bible. What do those promises say? John 3, 16 says, if you believe in God, if you, if you, if you confess your sins and believe in God, you will be saved. God sent his son into the world to save us. Remember God's promises to Abraham. And his descendants, the Bible tells us in this kind of mysterious way that you don't have to be biologically related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you can be related to them spiritually, spiritually through trusting in Jesus. You get, you get brought into the family of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember that promise, that you're a part of the family, the family of God. If you're ever feeling lonely or down, if your, your heart is hardening, remember that. How about the promise in Romans 8, where God says, all things work together for good for those who love God. That, that's incredibly good news. That's an incredibly good promise that you can remember, that no matter what you're going through, if you know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, God is using that hard thing for your good. And that good is making you a little bit more like Jesus. So God is the God who keeps his promises. He is reintroducing himself to Israel and he also is the Lord who brings evildoers to justice. God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Next week, we're going to look at the plagues, or the plagues that God sends on Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. These plagues are not God being petty or mean. They're God revealing himself. But they're also God dispensing judgment, justice, on a nation that has been abusing his people for the last 400 years. That actually tells us something about God, that he doesn't turn a blind eye to evil, but that he cares deeply about righting every single wrong, every single evil God makes right. I was recently listening to a sermon by Pastor John Ortberg in which he shared his favorite airplane story, his favorite flight story. And it was the flight uh, from New York to Florida. I don't know if this was true or, or, or made up, but it, it illustrates that God brings evil doers to justice. And that's a good thing, that when, when, when those who sin, when those who do wrong are brought to justice, it's a good thing. So in this flight, an elderly couple gets on a plane and they're, they're, they're getting in this flight from New York to Florida, and they are moving kind of slow. And there's a man behind them who's just being reckless. He's being, he's being unkind. He's, he's kind of mocking them and commenting on how slow they're going. He's real self-important. He's real obnoxious. He gets on the plane, and he sits right in front of them. So they're in first class. 
And he's mean to the flight attendants. He, he orders a, a meal, and then he sends it back because it's not good enough. And then he, he gets a new meal, and he sends that back as well because, well, he's on an airplane, and he expects really great food. And then he, he takes his chair, and he jerks it back as hard as he can uh, because that elderly couple's sitting right behind him. And, well, the, the, the woman behind him, the elderly woman, her, her food falls on her lap and gets on her dress and gets everywhere. And everyone's just gaping at this guy. Why are you doing this? Why are you being mean to everyone around you? And the flight attendant comes rushing up and says, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And she tries to help the woman. She apologizes. And, and the woman's husband says, you know, we're, we're on this flight uh, because actually we're celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. We've been saving up for a long time, and we've actually never been on a plane before. This is our first flight. We're very excited. And, of course, the flight attendant feels terrible. So she goes and she gets a bottle of champagne, and she gives it to the elderly man. And he takes that champagne, and he stands up, and he uncorks it, and he pours it on the head of the man <laughs> in front. And everyone in first class applauds. I sure hope that story is true. <laughs> See, when, when <laughs> every once in a while, it's good when justice is served, is it not? It's good when evils are made right. <laughs> the story of the Bible is the story that God makes every single evil right. As Christians, we see injustice everywhere. We, see, everywhere. we see sin pervading everything. We see broken families. We see abuse and misuse and, and, and people hurt. And we wonder, why, God? Why aren't you doing something? And God promises, someday I will. Someday I will make that wrong right. <laughs> but there's kind of a dangerous news in here, isn't there? Because if we examine ourselves, if we examine our own hearts, we realize that none of us is perfectly innocent. None of us is perfectly good. Yes, none of us in here are Hitler or Stalin, but when we look into our own hearts, we see smaller forms of, of lying and, and deceiving and, and mistreating others for the sake of ourselves, of pride, of selfishness. And we all are accountable to those things before God. And this is why the good, uh, who God reveals himself to be in this next point is so key. It's so important. This is what we need. It's so wonderful. He says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord who redeems you. The word for redeem means to ransom, to buy back, to set free. If you've read the book of Ruth, maybe you've heard of, of this title called the kinsman redeemer or the kinsman guardian. It's this idea that in the Hebrew culture, when there was someone who was destitute, who was in trouble, who was poor, they could go to a close family relative and, and perhaps the, the family relative would buy them out of captivity. So the kinsman redeemer was responsible for their family members, even if it came at great personal cost. And there's another aspect to this, because the kinsman redeemer was also the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood was a, a, another person. So if, if, if my, one of my brothers was murdered, it would be my job as the avenger of blood to go and, and dispense vengeance. See, when God is calling himself a redeemer, he's saying, I'm a guardian, I'm a protector, I will buy you out of slavery, I will buy you out of bondage, but I will also dispense justice. 
I will also go to war for you on your behalf to set you free from sin, from death, from Egypt. See, the cure to a hard heart is knowing that there is a God who loves us, who cares about us, who is willing to protect us, to guard us, and to die for us. To go all the way at great personal cost. The cure to a hard heart is knowing God. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is God and he came into this world to redeem us, to be our kinsman redeemer, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, to to rescue us at great personal cost so that he can transform our hearts, so that he can change our lives. So that when you hear that question, how's my heart? You don't have to define your heart by your circumstances. You don't have to define your heart by what is going on in your life. You can define your heart by the cross and by the empty tomb because Jesus is risen. That's what Easter is all about, that Jesus rose from the grave. And if, if you trust in him, if you believe in him, one day you'll rise from the grave too. So your heart is good, your heart is new. How's your heart? The cure to a hard heart is knowing God. Let's pray. Father God, for those that don't know you here tonight, would you help them give their hearts to you? Would you help them give their hearts to Jesus Christ? And Lord, for those that do know you and sometimes struggle with hard-heartedness, would you help them confess that? Would you help me confess that? And would together we as a family, as a church family, as a Christian family, would we become a little bit more like Jesus? Would you give us soft hearts that love each other and that love you? Father God, we lift up the offering before you, our tithes, our offerings, this money that we've worked so hard for as we give it to you. Would you take it and would you use it? Would you use it to multiply your kingdom here in Westford? the name of Jesus go out. It's in his name we pray. Amen.